Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Man, today we start a new series called Unreasonable Doubt. With the recent parole hearing for O.J. Simpson, there have been a number of documentaries and TV shows discussing the murder trial of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Many of you who were alive at the time, um, I really start feeling my age when I start talking about things like this because I was an adult when this happened and, and some people like my children have no idea it ever happened, you know. And, and after this nine month long trial, it took jur- jurors less than four hours to find O.J. Simpson not guilty. And when they were asked, many of the jurors expressed that according to the evidence that was presented, the prosecutors simply did not prove him guilty. They did not say, we don't believe he's guilty. They just said, we don't feel like they proved it. And ultimately, O.J. Simpson was acquitted because of reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt is a standard of proof that is used in criminal trials. When a criminal defendant is prosecuted, the prosecutor must prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. If the juror or if it's a judge in a bench trial has a reasonable doubt as to the defendant's guilt, the jury or the judge should pronounce the defendant not guilty. According to the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, doubt is the highest standard of proof used in court. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Doubt is the highest standard of proof. In in short, when there is reasonable doubt, it controls the outcome of the verdict. Doesn't matter how a juror feels, if there is reasonable doubt, then they have to say not guilty. And because of this, many guilty defendants have walked away free because the, the Supreme Court has decided, and I quote, That it is far worse to convict an innocent man than to let a guilty man go free. Like it or not, reasonable doubt says that according to the evidence that has been presented, you have come to the conclusion that there is not enough evidence for a conclusion. That's what reasonable doubt says. And it's interesting to me, church, that many of us live our lives with this same mentality. That according to the current evidence that life is presenting to us at that moment, we come to the conclusion that there is no positive conclusion. We have reasonable doubt that life is going to be okay. We, we just, we do. We, we, in our minds, we reason and we have reasonable doubt that, that, that it's going to be all right. And today I want to begin showing you that our doubt is not reasonable at all. On the contrary, our doubt is often unreasonable because God has a proven track record. God has a proven track record because of his faithfulness. It is actually easier to believe than it is to doubt. But yet, for some reason, we often choose doubt. I told you earlier that everybody in this room is affected by doubt at some point in time. This week, doubt has crept into my mind. And there have been moments that I have just had to say, God, I know that you are capable. I know it, Lord. Some way, somehow, Satan convinces us to have unreasonable doubt. 
Uh, let me just, just talk to you just for a moment. Just kind of shoot from the hip here just for a second. And, and uh, you, know, you know Satan doesn't want your husband, right? You barely want him. <laughs> Satan doesn't want your wife. You drove around the block three times last night just so you didn't have to hear her voice. Just prolonging it a little. He doesn't... Satan doesn't want your family. You have a hard time finding babysitters that have put up with your kids. What does Satan want to do with your family? He doesn't want your house. What would Satan do with your house? What would he do with your car? Satan doesn't want any of that. Satan wants your faith. Satan wants to steal your faith right out from underneath you. If he can do anything to rip faith out of you, and he'll attack every one of those areas that I mentioned. Just to get to your faith. He wants your faith because he knows, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. That we must have faith in order to please God. So, so Satan will unleash an all-out attack on your life trying to remove your faith. And he will attack every area from every angle. He wants your faith. Why? Why? Because when you don't have anything else, faith is enough to pull you through. When you don't have anything else, if you have faith, it is enough to get you through that trial. It is enough to get you through that temptation. It is enough to get you through whatever circumstances you are currently going through. If you can just find faith. Jesus said to his disciples, if you can just find faith of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And so if you can just find that faith, when your car is broke down, faith gets you to work. I didn't say it's through your car, but somehow, some way, you're going to get to work because faith gets you there. When your marriage is on the rocks, faith allows you to see another wedding anniversary that you never thought was going to be possible. When you don't have a pot to pee in, do you know what that means? You do, right? It means you're broke. When you don't have a pot to pee in, faith puts groceries on the table. There have been times in my life, times in my marriage, times in my ministry when I had no idea how I was going to get out of the circumstances that I was in. But somehow, some way, faith brought me through that. And today I can stand here. And, and I've, I've really been, forgive me because I'm a little, you know, just emotional nostalgic and all this kind of stuff today with it actually being the 20-year anniversary of my ministry and, and and I'm thinking back on all these things that I've been through in ministry and times that I thought this is it I'm done I'm never going to survive this but God has always been faithful and all it took for me was just having a little bit of faith but Satan doesn't like it you see faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things that are not seen so faith requires you to see something before it's even there. It requires you to see it when it absolutely looks like it is not tangible. You will never be able to put your hands on that. Faith requires that. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is believing in your God in the most difficult of times. 
And today, as we just kind of, kind of start this series, as we just kind of, kind of put the foundation out there for this, I'm going to present something to you today that is one of the most discouraging moments in a person's life. But faith is what will always bring you through those discouraging times. There are four types of doubt that I want us to look at through this series. The first part is disappointed doubt. The second one is double-minded doubt. The third one is dignified doubt. And finally, we'll close this series with distracted doubt. But today I want us to look at disappointed doubt. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed? I'm going to preach better if, you, if you'll get behind me a little bit here. Have you ever been disappointed? I remember one time we went to a certain pizza hut. I will not tell you the location, but it is somewhere in the city of Alachua. And <laughs> there at that pizza hut, I remember us being there and we ordered pepperoni pizza because that's what you do. You get pepperoni on pizza. We don't eat a lot of pepperoni unless it's on pizza. And so we ordered pepperoni pizza only to be informed we are out of pepperonis. You're out of pepperonis? That's like Burger King being out of burgers, you know? You're out of pepperonis, really? Sorry, we're out of pepperonis. And Kendall was fine because she only eats cheese pizza. That's all she eats. So she, she's happy. Man, the disappointed look on my face. I know. I looked at that waitress, that poor waitress, and I was like, I don't like pizza without pepperoni. I can eat other things with it, but I want pepperoni on the pizza. I was extremely disappointed. That's not the disappointment I'm talking about today. So if you said you're disappointed, that's not it. Have you ever been really disappointed? I mean really disappointed. Okay. I mean disappointed to the point where you think God let you down. Some of you are like, whoa, whoa, can he say that right now? Look, my hand is, I am the lightning rod right now. He did not strike me. It's perfectly fine for you to admit that you have been disappointed with God. And I have been. I have been disappointed with God at times. You know these life-changing disappointments that happen, that you're believing for a job and you didn't get it. You fasted. You prayed. You gave extra in the offering and you still didn't get the job. You were praying for a financial miracle, but, but at the end of the day, you were still broke. Or, or maybe you were praying for a healing for either you or someone that you love, and it didn't happen. And it may have even resulted in death. And how do you deal with that when God lets you down? Matthew chapter 11. I want to read verses 1 through 6. Matthew 11, starting at verse 1. It reads, When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, John is John the Baptist. This is the cousin of Jesus. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John is in prison because he confronted Herod for marrying his brother's wife. And John said, this is immoral. You should not do this. And so he confronts the leader and says, you're wrong. And Herod has him thrown into prison. Spoiler alert. If you don't want to know the end of this story, here it comes. John never gets out. As a matter of fact, while he's in prison, Herod has his head cut off. He is beheaded in prison. If anyone believed in the ministry of Christ, it was his cousin, John the Baptist. If anyone believed that he was the Messiah, John believed it because as far as we know, I, I've never read of any other instance, John was the only person in history to be filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. The Bible says that, that while he was still in his mother's womb, Elizabeth's womb, uh, that when Mary walks in, the mother of Jesus, when she walks into the room, the Holy Spirit fills uh, Elizabeth and John and he leaps within his mom's belly. It was like at that moment he knew the Messiah had walked into the room being carried by his mom's womb. But, but yeah, it, 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 it happened. Even as a, an unborn baby, he recognizes the deity that is on Christ. The Bible tells us that John prepared the way of the Lord as a voice crying out in the wilderness. And crowds followed John. They were listening to what he had to say. That the Messiah is coming. That now we must repent. We must be baptized and, and be prepared for the Messiah that is coming. And one day while, while John was baptizing people... The Bible says Jesus comes walking up and at that moment, John stops everything and, and he brings the attention of the crowd off of himself and he puts the attention on Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he baptizes Jesus and John, John was there as a witness to see a, a dove descend from heaven, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove resting there. And then he heard a voice out of heaven, the heavenly father. John heard him say this about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John was there. He knew that Jesus was the Christ. It was John that would proclaim, I must decrease so that he must increase. In other words, my ministry has been great. Crowds have followed me, but I recognize at this point now that he has stepped forth into his calling, I must fade into the background so that Christ can be exalted at this moment. I must decrease so that he must increase. John had all the proof in the world. He knew, but doubt in a very difficult time causes him to wonder. Many scholars believe that John the Baptist hung out with a group of people called the Essenes. The Essenes were a very interesting group of people. Uh, they were a, a sect of Judaism that lived life with, with ritual purity and separation. They lived out in, in, in caves, out in the wilderness, out in the desert. 
They are often associated with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Back when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they, you may have heard the name, the Essenes come up. But their existence was very short-lived. They were only around for, for less than 200 years. The timing of their existence is very interesting. They, they popped up around 100 BC and then they just vanished somewhere around 70 AD, which is really, that's the age of, of preparation for Christ and, and, and getting everyone you know, ready for that moment, that moment of his birth. And then they stuck around for the ministry of Christ and then for the immediate after effects of his ministry and what that meant to the world. And whether or not John was an Essene or not is a mystery. We'll, we'll probably never know that. But we do know that he and his ministry were strongly influenced by them. They were desert dwellers. John was a desert dweller, lived out in the, in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey. They both used Isaiah 40 and 3, both the Essenes and John, to describe themselves as a voice crying out in the wilderness. The Essenes were looking for the teacher of righteousness. That's what they called him, the Messiah, the teacher of righteousness to appear. And John found him in Jesus. The Essenes meticulously followed the law of Moses and devoured the writings of the prophets of the Old Testament. So obviously John knew the law and he knew the prophets also. So when John's disciples are sent to ask Jesus, they are going on behalf of a very discouraged man who is sitting in prison, knowing that he's prepared the way of the Lord, and they ask, they say, listen, John wants to know, Jesus, are you the one? Or should we keep looking for another? Are you who you say that you are? Because John's rotting away in prison right now. And if you're not, let us know so we can keep looking for, for the Messiah. And personally, I can understand John's anxiety and his doubt because he knows his days are numbered. He's about to be killed. John had been described as one who comes like Elijah. You remember the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament? Hundreds of years earlier. The Bible in Luke chapter 1 describes him, uh, describes John the Baptist. And it says he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's how John the Baptist is described. And so when you think about this, that, that he's going to go before Christ in the spirit and power of Elijah, you start thinking about the end of Elijah's life on this planet. Uh, Elijah never saw death the way that you and I would see death. The Bible tells us that, that he was taken up into a chariot, a chariot of fire. And he was received into heaven that way. And so when you start thinking about, oh, they're comparing me to Elijah. The spirit and power of Elijah is on my life. That's how I expect to go. Do you know how many years in preparation that, that John probably thought, I'm not going to die the way that humanity usually dies. I don't have to worry about being in prison and being beheaded. Because if I'm like Elijah and I have the spirit and power of Elijah on me, God is probably going to just one day, after all of my hard work, he's probably going to show up on a chariot of fire. I'll get into the chariot and we'll ride off into the sunset together. And there I will forever be with the Lord. Wouldn't that just be great? Yeah. 
Elijah's funeral was unlike any other, and John was hoping for that. Hoping for that kind of exit. And so John has some questions for Jesus. My hopes and dreams are not coming true. This looks very bleak in this moment. What's up, cuz? What's going on with this? And in his response, Jesus restates his mission statement. Do you remember when Jesus started his ministry? When he walked up in in the synagogue, he opened up the scroll and he began to read and he was setting forth his mission statement. This is what my ministry will look like. And he said this in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Here's what he said. And he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was his mission statement. That's what Jesus said that his life was going to be about. And John got to see some of that. He was able to witness some of the miracles that were taking place. And so he knew that Jesus was capable. He knew that he had seen him do it. But his response back to John, notice how similar that it sounds. I want to read it to you again. Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered them. Listen how familiar it sounds to his mission statement. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. That's what he tells them. He reinforces his mission statement. You go and tell John that the mission has not changed. This is what I'm about. But in his message back to John, he leaves out this one key statement that he quoted from Isaiah. And it's this. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And he never says that back to John. And that is the one thing that John is hoping for. He can care less about his sight. He can care less about good news. All he needs is his liberty. Set me free. And it's the one thing Jesus doesn't mention when he reestablishes his mission statement. In other words, John, I'm doing what I said I would do, but this time I will not save you from prison. At any given moment, if you're like me, it can feel like God leaves out a part of his purpose in my life. I know this is a very bold message this morning, but there are moments when I feel like That the way God is operating, that he's just leaving out part of his purpose in my life. Like maybe he's not fulfilling the full mission. We could go through that mission statement. Some of you, you just need to hear the good news. That's what you need. But at any moment, God can choose not to give you the good news. Or, Or maybe you just need a recovery of sight. But at any moment. 
God can just choose not to heal you. Hey, John, what if you never see the outside of that prison cell? What if you never get your freedom? And as dark as that is, you still have to look at the history of it and realize that John had unreasonable doubt. Doubt, but extremely unreasonable. He knew from before he was born that Jesus was the Messiah. He had absolutely no doubts about his deity. He always knew, always knew. He always knew that Jesus was capable. And I'm convinced that his conversation with his disciples and sending them back to Jesus to say, hey, ask him, are you the one or should we keep looking? He knew all along that he was the one, but he does like you and I do. He tries to negotiate or maybe even push the hand a little bit. Maybe if I can just say enough words that, that maybe Jesus will feel obligated to help me out here. Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus says, you know I'm the one. I've been doing all of this. But you're going to have to learn to deal with your disappointment in this moment. That's what he's been teaching me. That he's not my genie in a bottle to get everything that I want. That there are times when he will bless me. There are times when he will show favor. But then there are other moments when I just have to rely on who he is and what he's done in the past, not for what he can give me for the future. And it's one of the hardest moments for humanity to come to grips with that. And Jesus makes this statement, and it, it, I'm telling you, this is about to slap you right upside the head, but listen to how he closes out that sentence. You ready? He says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Have you ever been offended by God? I have. I was offended by God this week. Because it's impossible for me to walk out of the nursing home at Ayers without being disappointed with God. It's a weekly thing. My dad was a, a tall man, six foot two, six foot three, depending on how tired he was. Those are his words. He's a great man of God. Now Alzheimer's has attacked his mind. And I walked in this week. I sat down beside him. And I did what I always do. Hey, Pop, 
I'm Rocky, I'm your youngest son. And he looked at me with a strange look on his face. He said, no, you're not. Why are you trying to kid me? I said, Pop, it's really me, it's Rocky. And he just went on doing whatever he was doing. And so every time I stand up to walk out of that place, it's nothing with airs. That is a wonderful place. I thank God for it. But I walk out of those doors disappointed that I'm having to leave my father, who was a great man of God and does not deserve what he's going through. And I get in my Jeep and I always have to say, why is this happening to him? And then there are days that I show up And one of the nurses walks up to me and says, hey, I've got a video I need to send to you. We were all down in the cafeteria the other day and someone was singing a song at the piano. And when they finished, your dad wheeled himself up front and he started preaching the gospel. Blessed are those who are not offended because of something God did or didn't do. The most beautiful thing about Alzheimer's is that he has no idea he has Alzheimer's. And he is not offended at all. And God still uses him in amazing ways. We have doubt. But when you think back on God and what he's done, it's unreasonable doubt. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.